the Lord is my shepherd, borrowed straight from the passage, the big idea, the Lord's presence provides peace for the present. The Lord's presence provides peace for the present. When I was seven or eight, we took a trip uh, down to the Austin area and uh, went to San Antonio, and then we floated the Guadalupe. And I remember, uh, this was my, my, my dad, my biological dad was still around, and he's a big guy, he's about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, um, just really big man, and we're floating together, and I think my sister was just too young, so my mom probably had her, Lauren, and we're floating together down the river, and it's calm, and we're enjoying it, and all of a sudden I look ahead, and I see two water moccasins, cotton mouse, swimming across the water, and I was terrified. It's a true story. It was on the news. No, it wasn't on the news, but this really happened, and so I'm terrified. I grab my dad. I climb up into his lap, and as soon as I did, and I knew that my dad had me, and he was with me, I had peace. I had peace, and this would have been a great ending if my dad would have just grabbed the snakes, and you know, but that didn't happen. Uh, They disappeared, thankfully. They didn't bother us, but again, initial fear dispelled when I realized my dad was with me and he had me. Psalm 23 is a favorite, I think, for many. Um, (laughs) Often reserved for funerals. I've read it at funerals. Uh, But this is really a a psalm that we should be familiar with in all seasons of life because of the truths that it declares. And so Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me, this is the second time now, He leads me in paths of righteousness, and He does it for His name's sake. It's really important. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's presence. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, so what type of psalm is this? I told you during this study we would try to cover all the major types. There's only about ten of this type found in the Psalter, the book of Psalms, this is a trust psalm. A trust psalm. It is a subcategory of the, can you guess? The lament. The lament. In it, in a trust psalm, the psalmist expresses his great confidence and trust in in the Lord. In the situation that gives way to the psalmist's declaration of trust is usually one of great hardship, opposition, and affliction. We see that in verse 4. The overarching reason for such confident trust in the Lord is due to God's saving presence. The game changer, and this is important, the game changer for the psalmist is what? When do things change? There's a transition in Psalm 23. It's when he focuses on the character of God. Much like in the lament. Remember we talked about in the lament, 
the lament, there's a consistent movement from woe, crying out to God to worship. What enables the transition? It's when the psalmist fixes his attention on the Lord, who the Lord is, who he promises to be, what he promises to do, his character. Again, there's about ten of these in the Psalter. How do trust psalms differ from laments? If this is a subcategory of the lament, what is the difference? Mark Futato, that's an unfortunate last name, it's hard to say, Futato, he's a a psalm scholar. He's really good. I, I enjoy Mark. I don't know him personally, but I've read him a few times. He says, like laments, and he calls these the songs of confidence, right? Song of trust. The songs of confidence often have some kind of personal trouble in view. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? There it is in verse 4. He goes on to say, this trouble, and here's the, disting- the distinction between the lament and the song of trust. This trouble does not seem quite as painful as in the laments. The trouble feels a bit further away, but is nonetheless felt. They lack the anguish that characterizes the laments. He goes on to say, the distinguishing characteristic of this category is their unwavering confidence or trust in God's ability and willingness to deliver from adverse circumstances, right? These are quite possibly the most beloved and most applicable of all the Psalms in the Psalter. What enables us, church, to get through the storms of life, hard times? How do we navigate through the storms of life? How do we navigate through the darkness? How do we call out to God in the midst of these dark and seemingly hopeless hours? How do we do it? Yeah, faith, trust in the Lord. And he shows us how in the trust psalm. So the trust psalms are wonderful guides for approaching the Lord in the storm. Who's ever gone through a hard time? And maybe the hard time was on the horizon. You knew it was coming, but you're wondering, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to face this? What do I do? Who's ever been there? Hopefully all of us, and if you haven't, you will be. I promise you. You, All of us will suffer. Look to God's word to guide you. Doug Stewart writes, these psalms help us to express our trust in God whatever our circumstances. Isn't that helpful to know that whatever our circumstances, God shows us in his word how we're to respond. Aren't the Psalms a help? It's God's word, amen? Here's the structure. Very simple. Verses, I think I put this in your handout, the structure. Verses 1 to 3, confidence in the Lord. Verse 4, this is verse 4a, dark times, okay? Here's the situation that demands that the psalmist trust the Lord. And then verses 4b to 6, the last third, reasons for confidence. Okay, so confidence in the Lord, dark times, reasons for confidence. Let's start with verses 1 to 3, confidence in the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores, and we've seen this verb already, shuv, he restores my soul He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So what's the takeaway here? Number one, the Lord is our all-sufficient shepherd. The Lord is our all-sufficient shepherd. Now, 
Most scholars see two important images or metaphors being ascribed to God in Psalm 23. Verses 1 to 4, the Lord is our what? He's our shepherd. This is a prevalent image ascribed to God, both in the Old and the New Testament. But secondly, in verses 5 to 6, the Lord is our host. He's our intimate friend. He's our shepherd. He's our host or intimate friend. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. It's actually a verb in the Hebrew. It's the verb ra'ah. Ra'ah, which means to shepherd or to tend or to care for. But when used metaphorically, it simply means shepherd or care giver, one who leads even. Now, by employing this particular metaphor, the psalmist is acknowledging the Lord as the one who guides, protects, cares for, sustains. And what's interesting, if you keep reading, in verses 1 to 4, these shepherd-like qualities are brought to light. He's our guide, verses 1 to 4. He's our protector, verses 1 to 4. He's our provider, verses 1 to 4. He's our caregiver, Verses 1 to 4, he is our what? He is our shepherd. He's our shepherd. Now, the next line really encapsulates what this image stands for. And this is where I was so confused as a child. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What? And in my mind, it just sounded like the Lord is something and I don't want him. And I was like, why would you say that? What is that? That's not what it means. I shall not want so, again, this may sound confusing at first. Heser is the Hebrew. I do not lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I do not lack. I have all that I need. If the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. I know it's been a while, but Psalm 3, this was our third week in our psalm study, and you guys thought he's going to keep going, but then I skipped, right? We didn't do Psalm 4, but we jumped ahead. But in Psalm 3, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are my glory. You're my glory. And we talked about what does that mean. The, the word there in the Hebrew, it means spoils of war, my possession. Literally, you're my treasure. Oh. So what, again, let's read these together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my treasure. If I have the Lord, I have everything I need. I don't need anything else, right? I mean, that, that's the force of this language. If I have the Lord, I need nothing else because he sustains me. He meets my greatest needs. He's my treasure. There's no one more valuable than the Lord. If you have him, what else is there? There's nothing else. So the question is, are you fully satisfied in Christ today? Can you honestly say, because I have Christ, I have all that I need? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. It's probably a better translation for our modern ears. I lack nothing. Isn't that sweet? Can we say that, church? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Now, this is cool. Shepherd, as I mentioned earlier, is a regular image used to describe God in the Old Testament. And it's used in many of the promises looking forward to the Messiah. Okay? So, Isaiah 40 Verse 11, and I put this in your notes because I want you to have all these references. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. 
and gently lead those that are with young. Isn't that a beautiful image ascribed to God? He's our shepherd. Oh, Ezekiel 34 is one of my favorite chapters in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 34, 11 to 13. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Oh, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I, listen, I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. Go on to verses 23 and 24 of Ezekiel 34. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Listen to this part. So how is God described in the first half of Ezekiel 34? He's a what? He's a shepherd. What do shepherds do? They gather their sheep, right? They rescue the sheep that have gone astray. I'm going to go get them. In the context there... It's really an indictment against Israel's failed leadership, right? The failed leadership that neglected the sheep. God is saying, I'm going to come get them. I'm going to come rescue them. And so keep that image in mind. God is shepherd, going to rescue his people. Everybody say amen. That's fantastic. But this is where it gets confusing. If you don't know Christ. <laughs> if you do know Christ, you're like, oh, this is sweet. And I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David, and he shall feed them. Now you're wondering, well, I thought, God, you were going to be the shepherd. Now you're going to set up a shepherd from David's line? Yes, because we know that Jesus is the God-man. He's the God-king. Amen? He fulfills. And that's why the Old Testament, there's these two parallel promises. God says, I'm going to come rescue my people. I'm going to send the rescuer, the king. Well, which is it, God? Yes, it's both, because both of those promises intersect in who? Jesus, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Oh, man, we see that at the end of Revelation. It's like, God, I spoke, it's done. What does that mean? It's going to happen, because I've spoken. <laughs> now, these examples I purposefully chose because they prophetically look ahead to God's saving intervention, his powerful return as king. God is going to come and rescue his people. They speak of the future restoration and God's rule and rescue through his servant, through the Messiah. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus fulfills this role. He is the divine shepherd come to rescue and restore. Here's a more subtle example, Mark 6.34 when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But then we get to John 10, 11. So right now, every other Wednesday, I'm getting with some of our young boys, and we're going through the I am sayings of John's gospel. We looked at Jesus saying, I am the door, earlier, I think it's verse 9 of chapter 10. But here, in John 10, 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 1 Peter 
Peter writes, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, as shepherd, pursues his lost sheep and gives his life for them. Amen? What does Psalm 23 reveal about God's character? That's point number two in your notes. The Lord as shepherd rescues and restores us for his glory. Number one, the Lord is our all-sufficient shepherd, right? If you have him, you lack nothing. Number two, the Lord as shepherd rescues and restores us for our glory? No, for his glory. Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The Lord as shepherd takes care of his flock, of his people. He leads us toward a place of rest and sustenance. That's what's being communicated by the image of green pastures and still waters. The Lord provides for our deepest needs. He cares for his people. I'm reminded of Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I'm further reminded of Matthew 6, 25 and 26. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Knowing these things about the Lord and having experienced God's gracious provision transforms one's perspective in the midst of hardship and difficulty. Do you know the one who can give you true rest for your soul? Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. So we talked about this last week. Psalm 19, he restores my soul. It's the Hebrew shuv. What does it mean? To turn back or to bring back. The, the sense here is of spiritual renewal and restoration. Even repentance. Now, soul in Hebrew is nephesh. It refers to the mind or one's life. This gets at the shepherd's commitment of pursuing his scattered sheep. Again, this is a beautiful picture of God's saving intervention. Like sheep, we what? We stray, and the Lord brings us back. He shoves us. He restores us. Next, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. What are paths of righteousness? Are those good things? A path of righteousness? It's the right path. It's the way of the righteous. The way that is in line with the word or instruction of the Lord. The Lord is bent on leading his sheep on that path. Like a good shepherd, he leads us toward what is good. Again, when I lived in Africa, the Fulani people, you would see them all day long. And what did the Fulani people do? They were shepherds. And so I'm out teaching or out playing soccer with my students. And I look up on the hill of the mountain. and I see the Fulani people. And what are they doing? They're taking care of their sheep. Are they leading them towards wolves? Are they leading them off cliffs? No, they're, they're taking care of them. 
They're providing for them. They're leading them towards water, towards food sources, because what does a shepherd do? Takes care of his sheep. Toward what end? The Lord does this toward what end? What's the goal? What's the stated purpose here? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's the purpose? For his name's sake. Note the progression in verse 3. He brings us back. Spiritual renewal causes repentance. That's the language there. He restores us. He then leads us toward his way. And he does this for his glory. That sounds a lot like the Christian life. (laughs) And of course, Jesus brings this to a head. Through his death and resurrection and our trust in him, we are brought from darkness into light. He places the Holy Spirit in us so that we can follow him, leading us down the path of righteousness, and all this for his what? For his namesake, for his glory. The Lord changes us. He renews a people for his name. He does it for his glory. We are not at the center of God's saving and restoring work. It's not for our glory. It's not for our namesake. It's for It's for his. It's from him and for him. It's from him and it's for him. Now, let's get to the the best part, the lament. I was being facetious. None of us look forward to lamenting. None of us look forward to the valley of the shadow of death. But we have to go there, right? Verse 4a, dark times, dark times. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you think shepherds were familiar with valleys of darkness? Do you think shepherds knew where threats lie? Of course, if you do something long enough, you're aware of what's good, what's bad, where the things that you should avoid are. So they knew, right? They knew that there were these places of uncertainty and danger where wolves would attack and where thieves would hide to break out and and take and steal. So the shepherd would often lead his sheep protectively through these places to get where he and they needed to go. Now, would you say that the valley of the shadow of death is a place unfamiliar to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is he familiar with that or unfamiliar? He's familiar. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about the cross. There, the Savior, the Son of God, Jesus, placed his trust in the Father. Jesus is our example here. Now, here's the kicker, and maybe the surprise. The valley of darkness is a place where the Lord often leads us so that we can have a platform, a context for trusting him. Amen? Why does the Lord bring us through these dark times? Suffering, opposition, hardship, so that we will learn to trust him more. You may find yourself today in a valley of darkness. What could that be? Jobless, spouseless, childless, frustrated, angry, broken, disappointed, hurt. What do we do? What's the game changer? Again, like the lament, what enables us to move from woe to trust and then to worship? 
Christ. The game changer. Point number three. The Lord's presence is the reason for our confidence in times of uncertainty. Verses 4b to 6. Here we have the reasons for confidence. So confidence, dark times, reasons for confidence. Verse 4b, this is, I would say, this is the most important line. Maybe the second most important line. The first is, the Lord is my shepherd. But the second, this is what grounds everything. This is what holds up Psalm 23. Are you ready for this? For you are with me. That's everything. This short prepositional phrase, with me, is monumental for the believer. Again, what do we do when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, in a season of darkness, in a storm, in a season of sadness? We trust the Lord. Why? He is with us. Amen? He's not aloof. We don't believe in the God of the deists. And I've explained this before. The deists believed that God created and then went on a permanent holiday. Hey, good luck, guys. Deuces, I'm out of here. No care, no concern, no compassion, no involvement. Is that the God of the Bible? Of course not. The game changer, what enables us to trust the Lord, even in the hard times, is that we're not alone. He is with us. So I want to point to a few examples in the New Testament of the Lord's abiding presence for his people. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. I mean, we're talking about what should be the scariest mission, okay? Go to the nations (laughs) and make disciples. What? What? Like we just saw what happened to you, and now we're going to align with you and go and proclaim you I mean, that's terrifying. But how does the Great Commission end? Let's just read it together. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what did Jesus say before this? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like, I'm, I'm the man. I'm the king. I'm the God man. I'm the king. I've got all authority. Go make disciples. Okay, I mean, that's helpful. You have all power. You have all authority. That's more of like a kick. Like, well, yeah, I'm going to go because you're the king. But listen to what else Jesus says. Baptizing them teaching them. How does it end? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's the promise? It's the promise of his presence. Why can we trust the Lord? Because he's with us. What enables us to trust the Lord? He's with us. John 14, verse 16 and 26, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now again, he's speaking to the disciples here, but this is true for us as well. We get the same Holy Spirit, amen? Who is with us how long? Forever. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him you also, when you believed, when you believed the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with what? Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. Um, my mom, probably three years in a row, you came to see us on Clark's birthday to take our family to the Great Wolf Lodge, which is a magical place for a kid. It's a, it's a water park inside a hotel. It's just insane. I think there's one in Dallas, right? In the Dallas area. 
Well, there's one outside of Seattle, and so my mom would come, and this was her big birthday present to Clark. You always got him something else. But this was like the big trip. We'd stay two nights. We'd do the, the water park at the Great Wolf Lodge. And Clark loved the wave pool, even though he couldn't swim. He was just enamored by it. And so he would kind of get out there like a little kid and, and get up to his waist. And if, but it, here's the deal. He'd be a little timid, but then he'd look back, and I'm, I'm literally right behind him. He can, like, feel me behind him. And when he knew he was with me, what? Fear's gone. Why? Am I going to let him go under? Am I going to let the waves take him out? No, I, I'm, I'm going to protect him. I'm, I'm there. I'm present. I'm present. Clark knew that I would take care of him. He knew I was present, and my presence gave him what? Gave him confidence, gave him peace. How much more the Lord of the universe? I mean, is there any comparison? No. He promises to be with us no matter what we're facing. We can trust him. Why? Because he's with us. Now, what of the final image of the Lord as host in verse 5? Point number four. The Lord is our hospitable host and friend before our defeated foes. The Lord is our hospitable host and friend before our defeated foes. So the lament continues with the mention of enemies present. That's kind of scary. I mean, these enemies are present, but a table's being laid out before the enemies. But the enemies are there! Oh, but <laughs> why not worry about those enemies? At this point, what's happened to them? They've been conquered. Do you guys know that feasts, and I think we do it pretty well here in East Texas, feasts are typically had or done in the context of celebration, right? I mean, who, who goes all out for birthdays? You invite all the family over, you barbecue, right? Adam, you have a gift that I don't have, man. You're a culinary genius, brother, right? And so we've had your barbecue. But again, when family and friends gather for a special occasion, we eat. That's what we do in East. We eat well. Maybe some of us too much sometimes, right? Did you know that in Rome, when the Romans would defeat an enemy, they would have a feast. But you know what they would do? This kind of hardcore, kind of mean they would take the king of that defeated nation and they would parade him through the city, mocking him, and then they'd have a big feast and then they'd kill him. <laughs> but it's like, it's a celebration. You have been pacified, bro. You're done. You're out. We're safe. We've been rescued. You're the defeated foe. We're celebrating. So listen to verse 5 with that in mind. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The Lord here is likened to a gracious and generous host, an intimate friend. Now, there's likely two interpretations here for verse 5, and I'll tell you where I lean, what I think is most likely what's intended here. First, and I think honestly, both are true, but I think the second one is the most likely. The first one's this, the Lord's hospitality and provision cause one to forget one's enemies. He is a place of refuge and peace in the midst of threatening foes. I think it's, I think it's deeper than that. I do. Here's the second thing. I think this is what's intended here. The enemies themselves have been captured. This is a celebration feast in the presence of one's enemies. But they've been pacified. Imagine them in cages 
hands bound. No longer threatening, right? They've been dealt with by who? The shepherd king. The shepherd king. The banquet image. I'm, I'm so thankful because I really enjoy eating. And how is glory described? How is heaven described? The new heaven and the new earth. Man, it's going to be a celebration. There's going to be food. There's going to be a supper. We're going to feast. Amen. Adam may be one of the head cooks throwing out barbecue, man. The Lord's going to keep using that gift, brother. But listen to this. So again, keep that in mind. Keep what we just read in verse 5 in mind. One more time. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know my head with oil. My cup overflows. Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Revelation 19, 7 to 9, describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In Christ, if we've trusted in Jesus, we have victory over sin and death. Remember what Satan means? Accuser. But if Christ now represents you, if you've been clothed in his righteousness does Satan have any ground to accuse you now? No. Why? Because who represents you? Jesus. Whose righteousness are you now wearing? Not your own, but that of Jesus Christ. And now Satan has no grounds by which to accuse you. Amen? He's been pacified. Do you know that every time we gather for the Lord's Supper, we act out this victory meal, this celebration supper? we gather as a church, we're looking forward to that eternal gathering. We're going to celebrate together who Christ is and what he's done. Amen? We are no longer, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, we are no longer threatened by sin and death. It was so comforting. The pastors and I went over to Versi's house last week. And we spent two hours. And we, were, I mean, we left, our, our goal was to go and encourage her. I think we left more encouraged because... She's in complete peace right now. She's not afraid of death. Why? Because in Christ, she has the promise of forever what? Life. Amen? We are no longer threatened by sin and death, those things which formerly enslaved us, because Christ has won. Now, what are we to make of the final two images in verse 5? You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That sounds good, right? This is a picture of God's gracious and generous provision. It's a picture of celebration. It's a picture of salvation. The Lord gives us all that we need. He is our generous host and friend. He brings us into fellowship with himself through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Jesus are brought to the Lord's table. Who was Mephibosheth? That's a hard name to say. Who was that? Yeah. Who was Jonathan's dad? Saul. What was Saul intent on doing to David? Killing him. What should have happened to all of Saul's family? Terminated, killed, right? They were enemies of the enemy king. And yet, what does David do for 
Mephibosheth. <laughs> he brings him in. He brings him to the table. Brings him into the family. Amen? That is such a great picture of the gospel. I liken it to this. We were rebels hell-bent on overthrowing the king. We declared mutiny, right? We said, we rule, we're kings, we got this. And Jesus said, no, you don't. (laughs) He lived, died, rose again. He is the true king. He's alive. And those who by grace trust in him, even though we're enemies, even though we deserve hell, we deserve the cell, right? Jesus brings us into his family and we're brought to the table and we're made sons and daughters of the king. Isn't that incredible? What grounds the psalmist's confidence in the face of uncertainty? Number five, the promise, and this was the big idea, the promise of God's forever presence is what grounds the believer's hope in the present. Verse six, it's the last verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Oh, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's abiding goodness and mercy, His faithful love, and the promise of His forever presence is what grounds the believer's hope and trust in the present. This language is so significant. The Lord Lord doesn't simply promise that we'll be with Him in the future. If that's all we had, that'd be enough, right? I, I, I believe that. If that's the only promise we had, hey, you'll be with me in the future. But that's not it. He provides us with his presence now. He gives us his mercy and goodness now. Isn't that incredible? What do we deserve now? Hell. And not only does he save us from hell, we get this incredible future to look forward to, but even now he promises to be with us and to give us abundantly his grace, his mercy, his goodness. Again, look back to verse 4b. I'll walk through the valley of shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are with me. God is with us always. Always. And we experience this, I believe, tangibly through the ongoing presence of his goodness and mercy in our lives. What do these things, God's goodness and mercy, refer to? What do they look like? Willem Van Gimmeren, another great psalm scholar, He writes, the goodness of God is demonstrated in his abundant care and promises and are evidence of his blessings. God's goodness is seen in him always seeking our good. This refers to his benefits. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who call according to his purpose. The word for mercy, (coughs) chesed. Chesed. It's often translated as steadfast love, but it denotes God's faithfulness, his kindness, his mercy. God is faithful to keep his promises because he loves us. God's goodness and his faithfulness follow us. Every day we enjoy the goodness and the faithfulness of God seen in Christ's forgiveness seen in the giving of the Spirit, seen in the presence of the church, seen in the fact that we have His ear and we have His word. All things promised of God for those who follow Him. 
the verb to follow here, what's going to follow us all our days? His goodness and mercy. It's the verb redap, and it means to pursue. God is going to chase us with his goodness and mercy all the days of our life. So this is why that's so cool. Even as the wild animals pursue God's sheep, so does God's goodness and mercy. He's not promising us a life free of difficulty and hardship and pain. But he's saying, as those things happen, what's going to accompany you? My goodness and my mercy. I'll give you all that you need to endure. I will sustain you. Isn't that amazing? He's not promising us a carefree life. There's no prosperity gospel in Psalm 23. But there is the promise that when we go through those things, what else is going to pursue us? God's goodness and mercy. God doesn't leave us alone. He's with us. Amen? Those who trust in the Lord are recipients of His goodness and mercy, both now and forever. And because of this, we can have confidence that we will be with the Lord forever. The God who is with us now is the same God that we'll be with for how long? Forever. The new covenant will not be dissolved by death. Romans 8, 38 and 39. You've got to love how Romans 8 begins and ends. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 6 is the ground. It is the foundation for the psalmist hope and trust in the present. The psalmist has hope in the present because of the promise of God's presence in the present. Why does he have hope and trust in the present? Because of the promise of God's presence in the present. And coupled with that, the promise of God's presence forever. Not just now, but forever. Things will get hard, but God is with you. Things will get hard, but you'll be with him forever. Amen? Isn't that comforting? Again, such knowledge, such truth transforms the believer in the midst of uncertainty. Imagine, and I think this is where we fail, and I do this too, we get so fixated on our circumstances, we forget the promises of God. We get weighed down by life. It's like a friend, I mean, um, if you've been to Seattle, if you've flown into the airport, you can see when you're coming in, and you can see in the city, and even up north where we lived in Marysville, you can see Mount Rainier standing over 14,000 feet high. And on a clear day, which again was rare in this area, you would just be in awe. It was almost haunting. It's like it's going to fall on top of us. It's just massive uh, volcano. It's not active right now, but it's, it's a volcano. It's huge. But it'd be like me standing with a friend, and you know we're, we're looking up at this magnificence that God created, and he goes, oh my goodness, look at that dead spot of grass over there. I'm like, hey, bro, just lift your head up a little bit. Do you see what I see? Oh, okay. <laughs> but don't we get so fixated on the dead grass, we forget what God has in store. We forget to look at this beautiful landscape that he's promised us, life with him forever. Amen? We fail to remind ourselves of what the future holds for those who are in him. So when you find yourself in a difficult place, what do you do? You ponder the promises of God. Look to the future hope of the believer. 
the return of the King, the righting of all wrongs, the renewal of all things, and our eternal rest in God's presence. What is the goal for the psalmist? What's his goal? Being with the Lord forever. This is how Psalm 23 ends. We should ever be mindful of the promise of God's forever presence. Our present is transformed when we meditate on the promise of God's forever presence and what it entails. And that's Revelation 21, 1 to 4. There I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know what the meat of that promise is? I'm so thankful, and when we've gone through seasons of sadness and suffering, verse 4, the wiping away of all tears, no more mourning, crying, or pain, I long for that. But what's at the heart of this promise? It's in the middle. It's verse 3. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The Lord, thankfully, is committed to seeing our salvation reach its intended goal, resurrected bodies, a resurrected people, in a new heaven, and a new earth, with our Lord for how long? Forever. i got a little time. Last question, this is quick but significant. How does Psalm 23 point to Christ in the gospel? Well, number one, Christ is the good shepherd. We saw that back in John 10, 11. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is with us forever. And that's what's the, the beauty of Psalm 10, or Psalm 10. John 10 is Jesus. We get the promise that, again, those who know him, those who follow him, those who hear his voice, those who belong to him, he's like, listen, I got you on my hand. Ain't nobody going to snatch you away from me. My father's got you in his hand. Ain't nobody going to snatch you from my father, right? I got you. Isn't that good? I got you. Secondly, Christ, his finished work, and what his finished work guarantees is the reason for our hope and trust in the present. Christ and his finished work, and what his finished work guarantees is the reason for our hope and trust in the present. In him, we have victory. In him, we have rest from our enemies, sin, death, and Satan. Number three, and, and probably the most significant, is this. Christ himself entered into the valley of the shadow of death for us. Amen? He went to the cross for us. He took death, the wages of our sin upon himself, and he did that for us. He did it so we could be forgiven and freed from enslavement to sin. And then lastly, and this is more of a, a summary of everything we just talked about, Christ has fulfilled Psalm 23. Christ brings us into the presence of God. Christ restores our soul. 
Christ defeats our enemies, sin, death, and Satan. Christ is the path of righteousness, the way. Christ has prepared a meal for us, a great book by Tim Chester, A Meal with Jesus, so good. Top 20, I'd say. We enjoy that fellowship now. Amen? And we look forward to its fullness at the King's return. So the question is, have you trusted in the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, for salvation? I was talking to these kids. The age range was four to nine. And we talked about how Jesus is the door. And I said, guys, did you hear what the text doesn't say? Jesus is not a door. He is the door. And they knew what that meant. They knew that a door, I said, what does a door do? Well, it gets you into some place, right? We gave examples of car doors and home doors and church doors. It gets you from one place to another, right? It's a, it's a way of entry. And Jesus is the only way to, and they said heaven. But he's not a way. He is the way, the door. So the question is, have you trusted in Jesus? He is the only way for sinners like us to be brought into fellowship with God, forgiven and made new. Amen? And when you trust in Jesus, you have the promise of his presence now and his presence for forever, forever. Well, let's end with this. I'm going to pray. And again, I'm, I'm doing this to try to provide a, a model prayer based on Psalm 23. Um, Donald Whitney does this in his little book, Praying God's Word. Piper does it as well. I think it's just helpful to see, okay, what does this look like? So how might we prayerfully apply Psalm 23 if you'll pray it with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. We thank you that in Christ we are restored and made new. We thank you that Jesus and his way is the righteous path. Help us to follow Jesus. May our rescued lives be lived for your glory. And then verses 4 to 6, Father, because of Christ, his finished work, and the promise of his forever presence, we no longer fear the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. We know that these enemies have been dealt with through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior and Lord. Help us to have confidence in the face of uncertainty because of the promise of your presence. You are with us. Father, may this incredible truth transform the way we face hardship and pain. When we gather as your people to take the Lord's Supper, may we give thanks for your victory over sin and death, the victory that we now share with you because of our union with Christ by faith. May your goodness and mercy continue to pursue us, both now and forevermore. And may we long for the day when we will be with our Lord and King in the new heaven and new earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Next week, I forget. I honestly have no idea where I'm going to be next week. Um, Psalm 23. Psalm 27. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Amen.